0: Them. This is not the media. This is hell. And you can tell that this is not the media because what other podcast, live stream, or radio show is starting off the week with a discussion on the normalized brutality that has been the foundation of empire? So I'm certain you know that today we're talking about pearls, right? That's what you guessed, right? Yeah, pearls, not silver and gold. Pearls were the original target for accumulation by the Spanish Empire in the America. Massive oyster beds along the northern coast of South America, especially near Venezuela, produced massive quantities of pearls, leading to a glut in Europe. So many pearls were coming to Europe from all over the world. Europeans started becoming obsessed with their irregularities, categorizing them in an indexing that would portend a slew of cruel color-based determinations in art pearls would depict images of the cruelties their exploitation was causing in the new world including the transatlantic slave trade however like the pearls themselves these irregularities made pearls difficult to standardize as value was determined by more often than not the eye of the beholder rather than the state or the market with oyster beds and their pearls overfished with mineral resources having more stable value found inland the Spanish empire turned to precious metals for its wealth and power and far too often this early history of empire and how it was born out of the irregularities and chaos of the pearl market is erased but the legacy of that era would have a huge impact on the idea the very concept of empire everywhere We'll talk pearls and how they reveal human relations more than capital flows are at the heart of empire in a few minutes when we speak with historian Molly A. Warsh, author of American Baroque, Pearls and the Nature of Empire, 1492-1700. to 1700. Molly is Associate Professor of History at the University of Pittsburgh, where she is also Associate Director of the World History Center and Chair of the Steering Committee of the Alliance for Learning in World History. And you can follow Molly on Twitter at Molly Warsh, that's W-A-R-S-H. I'm your bitter-blind, broke-gap-toothed radio show podcast live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. It's Monday, so producing is Jess Lipka. Jess, how was your uh, weekend? Any plans for the week?
1: Um, I'm, doing, I'm doing great, yeah. Um, we've got someone staying with us, so um, that's been fun. We're hosting. Um, oh, really? So that's my week. Yeah, yeah. How uh,
0: long are you in town?
1: Um, just this week, but, yeah, he's on vacation. so that makes me feel a little bit like I'm on vacation, even though I'm not.
0: <laughs> I know how, I know how you feel. I had somebody in this uh, past weekend, and they told me uh, that they apologized for acting as if they were on vacation when they were staying at our house. So, uh, because we were not acting like we were on vacation, we were hard at work, unfortunately. In fact, have you ever had a weekend when you woke up on Monday morning and you realize you need another weekend to recuperate from the last couple of days? We had a friend, like you did, had a friend visit from out of town this weekend. First person who has visited us stayed with us since 2019 because of the pandemic. Nobody's been staying with us. The only other person who's visited ended up staying here at the studio because we were too freaked out about breathing their air 24-7 and possibly either giving them the virus or having them give it to us. So I'll tell you more about my weekend later as it pertains to an email that we received and how some very supportive listeners want to visit and how you too may soon be able to hang out with your friends here at This Is Hell. Not real soon, but soon enough. But more importantly than any of that, Jess, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience?
1: This week's question from hell is what are you stockpiling over there?
0: (laughs) What are you stockpiling over there? Uh, Clean air, I hope The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell Wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want You can see all of our merchandise right now By going to thisishell.com and clicking on support Where you will see all the ways you can contribute To completely listener-supported This Is Hell We don't take any commercial advertising money We don't take any grant money We don't even make enough money to be a not-for-profit We can't afford to be a not-for-profit So remember, without you, we got nothing So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck But we must have your answer by the end of Wednesday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following the return of Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Jess will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell, following our guest. Again, the question from hell is, what are you stockpiling over there? What are you stockpiling over there? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Jess has this week's Hangover Cure.
1: This week's Hangover Cure is Papas Rienas. HeraldOnline.com ran a story headline, It looks like a fried baseball, but could be your hangover cure. The article reports the Papas Rienas is a mix of potatoes, eggs, special seasonings and beef. It's fried like a donut and can be eaten like an apple. There are chicken and chili versions. And Benteker says some communities put a whole boiled egg in the middle. Manuel Manolo Bentiker, who makes Papas Rienas at Las Delicias Bakery in, in Cent- uh, on Central Avenue in Charlotte, North Carolina, is quoted saying it's the mix of potatoes, beef and fat that stop the hangover. The Herald adds, experts seem to agree, noting a greasy meal before drinking helps slow the rate of alcohol absorption. In fact, two tablespoons of mashed potatoes with a lot of butter is cited specifically as a good anti-hangover <laughs> remedy by the website Medical Daily.
0: So the hangover cure should just be mashed potatoes with a lot of butter on it, right? Okay, okay. just clearing <laughs> yeah,
1: that up. Yeah, two for one. Uh, the Herald ends by citing Medical Daily stating, gastroenterologists suggest eating fatty foods doesn't necessarily line your stomach per se but it may provide a better foundation for your stomach to handle alcohol. That makes this week's hangover cure Papas Rienas, even if it looks like a fried baseball.
0: (laughs) Disgusting. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is Hell, and if you would like to support our horrible business model that puts you before profits, subscribe to our bonus weekly Friday podcast at patreon.com slash hell, which streams live... Every Friday at 10am Chicago time in his podcast shortly after At patreon.com Slash hell. On this past Friday's Patreon podcast I explained my confusion about how 9-11 is memorialized With a celebration of the U.S. military Which is in the midst of wrapping up The two completely unnecessary and futile wars The military launched in response to 9-11 Doesn't really make sense to me Why we're celebrating the U.S. military When the military response to 9-11 Was a failure Then I ran it about an article published in the New York Times on September 11th, 2021, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. The story had the headline, How Teenagers Around the World Are Taught About 9-11, which comes with the arrogant assumption that teenagers around the world are currently being and should be taught about 9-11 as a basic part of their education. Now, to the best of my knowledge, the Times has never run a story where they ask teenagers from around the world how they are being taught about any other singular Historic event because I'm curious how teenagers are being taught about all sorts of history like the US-backed coup in 9-11 1973 in Chile that installed the Pinochet Dictatorship or the many slave uprisings in the United States and throughout the world during the transatlantic slave trade Which was really a war not to mention the slave trade of indigenous peoples. I'm curious how teenagers are being taught about those topics as well After I lost it over 9-11 Again, we shared an interview from our first show following 9-11-2001. That show featured the first live interview with Noam Chomsky following 9-11, as well as talks with the progressives Matt Rothschild, Z Magazine's Michael Albert, media channels Danny Schechter, political scientist and Afghan analyst David Gibbs. And the conversation we shared on our most recent Patreon podcast was... The last interview we did on the show on 9 or 9/15, 2001 and that was the interview we did with the Chair of the Peace and Justice Studies Program at the University of San Francisco, and an expert on Middle Eastern affairs who writes at Foreign Policy and Focus, Stephen Zunas. And it's an interview that I had not heard, well, since September 15th, 2001, when it originally aired. And unsurprisingly, when I did listen this past Friday, Stephen got everything right Less than 100 hours after the attacks on the World Trade Center and Pentagon Stephen even said that if we retaliate in a vengeful military fashion Both our short-term and long-term goals will not be met And a lot of innocent people would be dying along the way It's really worth a listen because the guests on our show When you go back to that first show after 9-11 They were... Spot on, they were getting everything right The second show after 9-11, not so much But you're, you're probably wondering why we didn't play the talk with Noam Chomsky And that's because we already shared it on Patreon And if you are a Patreon subscriber, you already have access to that incredibly prophetic discussion with Noam and all seven our conversations with gnome over the years you can get all of that right now by going to patreon.com this is hell you can only hear my problems with the way 9-11 is remembered and a guest accurately predicting exactly what would happen as an outcome of 9-11 only four days after 9-11 by subscribing to our weekly bonus this is hell podcast on patreon at patreon.com this is hell thanks to our nearly 500 patreon patrons We truly appreciate your support, and we hope you enjoy your discount on all the This Is Hell swag you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support. All subscribers to our Patreon podcast get $5 off each piece of merchandise. Coming up, the Spanish Atlantic Empire was built on pearls. We'll have this week in Rotten History, some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you stockpiling over there? What are you stockpiling over there? And uh, we'll tell you who's going to be on the rest of this week's show, as, and we'll try to figure out how we can hang out, and, and possibly soon. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell When we think of the earliest days of Spain's transatlantic empire and its beginnings with the voyages of Columbus, we often think of the new empire's uh, search for silver and gold, precious metals mined from the interior of newly occupied lands. But in reality, it was the pearl that the crown sought above all precious commodities and defined the relationship between humanity and the very concept of empire. Here to help us have a better understanding of empire, capital, human relations, and the pearl, and hopefully much more, historian Molly A. Warsh is author of American Baroque, Pearls and the Nature of Empire. Welcome to This is Hell, Molly. Thank you so
2: much. I'm honored to be invited on.
0: You can follow Molly on Twitter at Molly Warsh. That's Molly, W-A-R-S-H. You begin by writing of pearls, they are an accommodating jewel. Their simple natural beauty presents no challenges and suggests that the woman who wears them will offer none herself. What is the message you see being sent sent by the wearing of pearls? Why would someone in the 16th, 17th century want to send the message that they do not present a challenge?
2: That's a great question. I think that um, pearls continue to... Uh, project that image for many people who wear them. And I think that it serves the same purpose now as it did then, which is certainly wealth, although that's less of a factor now because you can get pearls much more cheaply now than you could then uh, for the most part. But I also think that they were meant to um, portray a level of docility, of just obedience, a level of comfort with the status quo I think and I talk about this in the book uh, particularly when I analyze some of the images from the 16th and 17th centuries of people wearing pearls it was more complicated than that I think there was also an association of pearls with uh, with enslavement and with servility and so I think people were depicted wearing pearls to try to indicate relationships of subservience and I think you know I think one of the major points of the book is that Really, in the end, people wore pearls for all sorts of reasons. Uh, we you know there we, we can't ever know exactly why somebody's wearing a pearl. They're pretty, they're nice, they look good um, with their outfit or whatever. But I think in general, pearls were um, they were a jewel that, in the popular imagination in the sixteenth and seventeenth century, could could sometimes evoke faraway places and exotic labor regimes. But increasingly became associated with hierarchies, hierarchies of wealth, hierarchies of race, hierarchies of gender, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Do you think any of that images, any of those understandings of pearls linger to this day when somebody decides to wear, say, a pearl necklace?
2: No, I don't, unless you're me. (laughs) I mean, I think about those things when I wear pearls. But I think that in general, one of the top one of the reasons that I became increasingly interested in pearls, having really not having come to this topic um or rather having stayed with the topic because of my deep interest in labor and labor regimes, I really I'm I was not some sort of pearl fanatic. That's not why I decided to write this book. But I think in general and my sort of reluctance to write the book at first was, oh, pearls are so boring. And people, you know, when you think about pearls, you just think of the sort of image of particularly white femininity and just sort of well behaved women. And I that was never a compelling idea to me but the more that i began to look into how pearls were actually produced where they came from how many different kinds of people could actually get their hands on them in the early modern period i realized it was a a very interesting topic so now when i wear pearls i think i know all of those stories i think about all of those things um but i think that remarkably and this is why i mean not that the book is ever going to fly off the shelves because it's an academic book and and they don't do that but my hope is that people who wear pearls who have either heard me talk about the book or read the book will realize that it's actually a more complicated jewel than it initially presents, just like people have always been uh, extra- extraordinarily complicated and impossible to control on a fundamental level.
0: When we think of the wealth generated by the new world that expanded the reach and wealth of the Spanish empire, often what is depicted, what is you know, grasping our imagination is a search for precious metals like copper, silver, and gold, and the exploitative nature. Of that extractive work did did indigenous peoples also have a similar experience when it comes to pearls which are not mined per se do they still have the same uh, exploitative experience as they did in the copper and silver and gold mines
2: Yes, they certainly do. Um, with the caveat, I mean, this is true for most natural industries in the Americas. There were indigenous traditions of harvesting pearls that existed prior to the arrival of Europeans and Africans to the Americas. Um, so those traditions were ones that that the earliest encounters between Europeans and indigenous peoples in the Caribbean seized upon as ways of trading um, and acquiring things that both both sides wanted. However, that very quickly evolved for a variety of complicated reasons, into um, a very brutal, terrible labor regime that absolutely uh, exploited mercilessly uh, indigenous peoples and African peoples uh, as much as um, the people interested in harvesting pearls were able to do so. And as I say in the book, this was all made more complicated by the fact that unsurprisingly, the indigenous inhabitants of the area where the pearl beds um, were located you know, off the coast of Venezuela knew a tremendous amount about the ecology, about about the waters that they needed to dive in, about how to uh, not overfish banks. Interestingly, and this is a part of the book that remained kind of um, impossible for me to figure out very quickly. It became also the case that enslaved African divers uh, became similarly expert uh, in locating oyster banks, in knowing how to harvest pearls most successfully. So. In sum, the the very people who were enslaved and exploited were also the expert, the holders of expert knowledge about how to actually get this good. And that created really interesting uh, dynamics in the pearl fisheries, but it didn't diminish their exploitive nature, which was tremendous.
0: But they don't have that knowledge when it comes to copper and silver and gold mining. Is that one of the reasons that the empire did shift over to copper, silver and gold mining? Because the laborer is the person who is holding the knowledge of where the mineral can be found.
2: Well, I think I mean, I think part of the reason that the attention shifts to um, to the mainland and to the more familiar tales of precious metal exploitation is because the Caribbean pearl beds never recover from their just sort of mind-boggling exploitation in the early 16th century. You know, they don't stop having people pay attention to them and trying to exploit them, but very quickly in historical terms, you know, within 50 years, it's clear that there's a lot more money to be made, and you know, much much larger indigenous populations on the mainland, not to mention the growing trade in enslaved Africans. Um, All of this became a big factor in in moving the Spanish crown's attention to the mainland and away from the Caribbean. And another thing to just point out here is that the Caribbean as a region suffered, the indigenous population suffered the most dramatic population declines as a result of disease and violence in that first half of the 16th century. So it was a it was a loss of the, the natural resources that were the oysters, it was a loss of human resources to exploit to get them, it was a combination of factors. The Spanish Crown did not know what it was doing early on, it just did not, it was absolutely helter, helter-skelter. Uh, it was a big mess, it was an, a big experiment. And that, and it was full of embarrassing episodes and, you know, m- you know, tremendously misbehaving conquistadors who would not listen to the crown and squandered profits. So what happened is as the action moved to the mainland, the Spanish crown had learned a lot of lessons. It had refined its bureaucracy. It had tightened up the reins basically on how it wanted to run the show. You know, overseas empire in the 16th and 17th centuries was always a messy affair, but it became less messy uh, in some senses. I mean, this bureaucratically by the time to the mainland. So what happens? Historians and chroniclers of the time stopped emphasizing the history of the early messy period in the Caribbean. And it was much easier to sort of crow about, to feel proud about you know, uh, exploitive operations on the mainland, be they silver mines, copper mines, what have you, later plantations, when the mechanisms for exerting state control were much more firmly in place. They just weren't in place in the Caribbean when the pearl fisheries were at their heyday. And that created a lot of problems for for the crown, for propaganda purposes. Um, So that's, I think that was another big factor in shaping for many, many centuries at this point, why people are much more familiar with the story of silver and gold and later agricultural plantations than they are with this early experiment in maritime exploitation. So... Um, the Sp- Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Oh, just that the Spanish crown continues to be thought of, you know, even sort of among professional historians, although that emphasis is changing. People think Spanish empire, they think big terrestrial empire, um, you know, land-based exploitation of human and natural resources. And that's certainly true, but part of what I'm trying to say with this book and, and with my ongoing work is that we really, really need to pay more attention to what, what the Spanish crown was learning at sea and along seashores, because that was also a really important realm of experimentation and knowledge building and exploitation.
0: In this early historiography, as you were saying before, uh, this has been kind of erased, this earlier part of the Spanish Empire and pearl exploitation. That's erased from our view. Why is that? Uh, you were talking about the kind of the chaotic nature of it being erased, but is it erased because of the brutality of the pearl fisheries? Because the system that came afterwards, the terrestrial system, to me it would seem, I don't know, was it more brutal? Was it less brutal? Is it the brutality of it that embarrasses the Spanish historians?
2: I mean, I think brutality is absolutely baked into the act of empire from the get-go. So I would I would be reluctant to say that one episode of exploitation is more brutal uh, uh, you know, causes more suffering than any other. Uh, from the minute this this enterprise got off the ground, people have been suffering. but I but certainly the scale of later um, wh- you know whether we're talking about silver mines or we're talking about you know much later down the road, sugar plantations or, or many other agricultural plantations, the 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 scale of operations and the scale of um, coerced labor grows greater but for me and as you know the book shows i'm not a you know i'm not prone to try to quantify the human experience in my approach to the past so i for me what happened in the caribbean and what happened in these pearl fisheries the suffering and the learning and the immense sort of creativity and perseverance that occurred there is just as important as what happened later and in many ways and this is what i argue in the book it's perhaps even more important because it's foundational it's this messy experiment in trying to, in grappling with what empire is going to mean, how messy it's going to be, how fundamentally uncontrollable people are, even when employing the most brutal mechanisms of trying to curtail their movement and communication, people people find ways to carve out spaces for themselves and to get things that make their life, to, to form relationships that make their life meaningful. So I think, you know, people forget that, uh, because in many ways the crown was embarrassed. It was embarrassed by people by, by Las Casas who visited the fisheries early on and just des- decried the abuses you saw. There were many, many people uh, who in very public forums for the time decried just how widely pearls were circulating. There's this line that I quote in the book of, you know, hasta las negras se ponen sartas de perlas. Even the black women are wearing necklaces of pearls, somebody wrote with horror just sort of calling attention to the fact like, whoa, the Spanish crown doesn't really know what it's doing. Like, Pearls are going everywhere. They have no control over this labor system. And that was a source of real embarrassment. Uh, so th- those accounts began to be um, edited out and accounts that gave a much cleaner portrayal of, of imperial administration that, that rendered a more orderly vision of how the Spanish crown was handling its empire began to be the ones that the crown, of course, wanted to circulate. Um, so I think that that's, you know, all of that has contributed again to our, our, our forgetting of the story of pearls and pearl exploitation.
0: So how do we view the power and dominance of, you know, the concept of empire and imperialism, imperialism differently when we see the beginning of the Spanish empire as one of trial and error?
2: I think and i think about this a lot as a teacher uh because it's something that comes up again and again in classes in a way that i find really interesting which is that you always come up against students belief that empire conveys power really absolute power and so when you're trying to talk about the relationship in you know 1502 or 1602 or frankly 1702 for that matter between colonies and a metropole that is at least 3,000 miles across a hard-to-navigate ocean. What I try to convey is like, empire is often, it's a fiction. It's a fiction that people agree to subscribe to. It can have very real consequences and very painful consequences for people depending on their status, their location, but it's also tremendously um, vulnerable and flawed and often difficult to enforce. So I think that part of what, I think part of what I'm hoping to do with this book is to sort of get people to recognize that, you know, not to diminish the terrible powers that empires can wield, but to remind people that not only did they not start out that way, they, are, they remain vulnerable, they remain imperfect. And there's always a lot of room for people operating on the ground, you know, on the water, as it were, in my case, um, to find ways to form alliances, to create value, to create communities for themselves, that that are independent of that you know, imperial vision that they may not even be aware of that is being generated in, um, you know, on paper, at least many thousands of miles away. My argument in the book is that people are forming their own political economies of empire on the ground and that this is a dialogue. It's people do what they do with pearls. The crown either likes it or they don't. And laws evolve in conversation with the actions of people who are actually living on the ground in these realities, using pearls however they're going to use them. Empire can't just be dictated from on high. It's also forged from below.
0: So if empire is far more precarious, if imperial power is far more precarious than we believe, why do we believe it is so invulnerable? What is the attraction to viewing empire and imperialism as an invulnerable power?
2: Well, one thing that empires have always been very good at is propaganda, and we still fall for that propaganda. I mean, we still—this is people. You know, empires have always told good stories about themselves. They publicize them more widely. They get rid of dissenters. They don't publish what they don't want to be published. Um, you know, and em- they have had a powerful political machine, and they've also built you know lasting structures of power, lasting monuments to their own achievements. Their empires have been very successful in. Um, in siphoning wealth their way, in, um, in increasing their, their, their political control. It's not that empires haven't succeeded on many levels, they have, but I would say a really important element of that success is the sort of self-promotion of empire as a behemoth, as, a, as, a, as an impenetrable fortress of political power uh, and of economic power. And I, I think that anybody who spends time studying empires, any empire anywhere, finds the cracks. Uh, in these empires, and that's how people figured out how to live in these often extremely oppressive structures. They also, you know, empires facilitated relationships that they didn't always foresee, right? People used empires also to their own advantage. So it was always, you know, it was, it was never going to be an entirely top-down uh, operation. There was always going to be some back and forth between people living in these evolving structures and the people who were trying to decide what shape they took.
0: We are speaking with historian Molly A. Warsh, author of American Baroque Pearls and the Nature of Empire 1492 to 1700. You can follow Molly on Twitter At Molly Warsh, that's W-A-R-S-H, you write, the Pearl Coast, this is the area along Venezuela, the Pearl Coast rose to early prominence as a site not just of profit, but of struggles for control over resources. The fisheries achieved early infamy because of the brutal labor system of pearl diving that developed there amid intense debates about policy regarding the treatment of Americans' indigenous inhabitants. So, were these debates over indigenous labor treatment were they taking place from the very beginning of the Spanish Atlantic Empire's presence in South America?
2: I mean, really, from the from the earliest decades, I and mean, really, actually, from really the earliest days, I think you can say um, there were always there were always dissenters. There were always people saying this is hell. Um, there were, in the end, their voices were not the ones that went out, but they forced a lot of very serious conversations about um, about what was going on and, and what and how this how this exercise in Atlantic Empire should proceed. And I would say, too, that they were, you know, in many ways, very successful in that the um, the 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 critiques of how the Spanish Empire was unfolding in the Caribbean became, you know, talk about propaganda, very, very useful in the hands of Spain's foes in Europe. It's, you know, rival Protestant empires who used the reports coming out of the Caribbean uh, about atrocities occurring in, in the pearl fisheries and elsewhere to use them as you know absolute uh, fuel for their fire of anti-Spanish uh, crusading. And that legend persists I and mean, persists, persists. It came to be known as the black legend of sort of excessive Spanish cruelty. Um, and it was certainly based in reality, but it, it's, it, they were hardly the only exploitative empire.
0: So you um, were pearls. And let me see if I can wear this correctly. Were pearls like an imperial monoculture, if you will, at the beginning of the Spanish Empire in South America? To what degree were they? Was there nothing else but pearls that the Spanish Empire was interested in?
2: No, not at all. They they were interested in pearls for um, because pearls were attractive and a great jewel. And as I argue in the book, they occupied a particular sort of place in the early modern european imagination as a as a sexy and interesting jewel but they were after lots of things they also wanted uh you know they wanted human labor they wanted all sorts of agricultural commodities they certainly wanted gold they're engaging in terrible you know brutal gold mining wherever they can in the caribbean so pearls aren't the only story of what's happening in the caribbean but they're a less familiar one and i think they're particularly interesting because of the way that pearls are are harvested um and the What we sort of learn about the way the Spanish crown is learning about the waters of the Caribbean and the actual ecology of the Caribbean and the labor systems that existed within the Caribbean before their arrival. I think pearls offer us that window into the Caribbean, but they're not at all the only thing the Spanish crown is interested in this early era, but they're one of the most important ones.
0: So to what extent was colonialism at the beginning a brutal non-state event that took along, uh, you know, uh, that took place along coastlines and along uh, South America, along the northern coast of South America. Because you state how the this is kind of a chaotic event; the empire is not in control of what's happening. So, to what extent was settler colonialism at that point a non-state event?
2: Yeah, I, it's a great question. I mean, I think a non-state event. I it's it's so hard when we think about uh, particularly the very early years of the Spanish Atlantic Empire, I think that it's tempting to only look forward or sort of to have our understanding of what came later really distort our vision of what the, the sort of 1500 mindset was, which was frankly, you know, medieval. And the goals of these, you know, relatively recently united crowns in sponsoring Columbus's voyage was, you know, was born out of a 15th century set of political desires and economic desires. I'm not, you know, to, to think about it as settler colonialism is a bit of a um, a stretch, I would say, at least for the first 50 years of um, of the Spanish Empire, precisely because it is chaotic. I you know there is no there is no grand plan or, to the degree that there is. It's constantly evolving. Um, you know, the crown has to claw back the rights that it gives to Columbus and his descendants when they realize sort of the magnitude of of the Americas, it's a mess. It's just a mess. So I'm I'm sort of reluctant to employ some of the more familiar terms that evolve later to describe the exercise of colonialism. I just don't think they're applicable uh, because they convey too much organization to these early years. Now, saying that, I also think that the, the central elements of empire and colonialism are absolutely present from the earliest days of these encounters. Brutality, exploitation, unclear communication, improvisation, all of that is certainly on, happening. But I just think that we don't want to continue this um, this pattern of overestimating the power of, you know, quote, unquote, empire, when really what makes the pearl fisheries so interesting is that they offer us a glimpse of this really just helter-skelter uh, time period, uh, when everything was up for grabs and it was uncertain who was going to be in control and what everything was going to look like, um,
0: and no real yeah. plans for empire, and also this not really having an understanding of what imperialism is yet. I just found that fascinating. You write that pearls were believed to be the product of intercourse. Like humans, also like humans, they were endlessly diverse and subject to decay. Pearls were produced by nature, yet to desire them was unnatural, reflecting avarice and excessive willingness to engage in risky behavior. They were known for their simple beauty, but complex ecologies and commercial circuits produced them and made them available to consumers. Consumers. Pearls could evoke purity as well as moral corruption. So do pearls that embody the societal and cultural and political contradictions of the day in Europe? Did they reveal that in our desi- desire for or pursuit of beauty, we will tolerate brutality, that beauty somehow justifies cruelty and exploitation?
2: Yes, I do agree with that. I mean, I do think that that is a fair way to characterize our desire for beauty. But I also think that they embody, I, I, I absolutely argue that they are a, a jewel of paradoxes and, and binaries, and that's a huge part of their appeal. But I think, you know, in the end, I, I think that they what they reveal they they certainly reveal interesting things about the early modern European imagination, particularly the Iberian imagination and, you know, why did people, why were people interested in pearls? But I'd say that even more than than what they reveal about what's going on in, in Europe, and of course, you know, the, the Spanish crown had a lot of experience with empire. They're still thinking about the Holy Roman Empire much more than they are about the early Americas, at least in the first 50 years of the 16th century. But what I argue, and I say this too, is someone who, you know, can still considers herself an American historian in the broadest sense of the term Americas. I think what they reveal is the paradoxes at the heart of the, the American experience, which is brutality is there from the very beginning. Exploitation is there from the very beginning. Inequality is there, but also extraordinary um, beauty and resilience and complexity. And I think that for me, at least, that is what is so compelling about these early pearl fisheries is that they they offer a window of this just paradoxical, brutal, beautiful, you know, devastating, uh, and yet uh, creative crucible that the Americas are from the very beginning and continue to be. And all of those elements are present from the get-go. Uh, and if you turn your eyes away from one, you don't do justice to the, the, just the complete complexity Uh, And the embeddedness of the Americas in global conversations about value and power from the very, very beginning uh, of these, you know, these these transformative centuries that come after the 1492 encounter. The Americas were plenty interesting before 1492, but they become interesting in new ways and often devastating ways after 1492.
0: You argue the political economy of pearls gave rise to a productive tension between vernacular small-scale understandings of wealth management, in which nature and expert labor played a major role, as did pearls' particular qualities, and developing imperial understandings of the same." So how tense were relations between small-scale settlers and the empire? When they set out, did small-scale wealth managers not see themselves necessarily as imperial subjects, but to some degree as autonomous?
2: Yes, absolutely, and I think in as you ask your question, I think of one of my favorite episodes. As I was, you know, reading, I read so many documents from various different places about the area of the pearl fisheries, and one of the sort of clearest visions that I got of, of this small-scale political ecology came out of documents in which the city council of Caracas on the mainland of Venezuela is trying to to regulate to impose official, i.e., imperial um, values for the currency being used in the area and the currency, whereas everything else is scarce, right? There's no silver, there's no nothing. What people have a lot of right there are pearls. So people are using pearls for their cash. That's just what they pay with, right? Everybody everybody can get them. So that's what you use to buy whatever. And what's fascinating is that you see the crown trying to issue, and, and crown representatives trying to say, okay, you can buy a stick that weighs this much with this many ounces of this type of pearl. And store owners are not allowed to vary from this. But clearly, and this is always the case, right, when you see prohibitions uh, in the archive, you just know that people are breaking the rules if they're constantly remaking them. People are constantly negotiating, you know, going in and saying, I want that cut of meat. And the store owner says, okay, well, pay me. I want five and a half... uh, I want five and a half Baroque pearls in exchange for that. And the person's like, you must be kidding me. I'm only going to give you three. That is not worth five Baroque pearls. So people on the ground who are actually living in the reality of like, I need to eat tonight. Uh, What am I going to pay? I'm negotiating with my neighbor here. I don't care what the town council says. I'm not giving you five Baroque pearls for that crappy piece of steak. I think that that to me, that was a really clear example of people negotiating the meaning of their own regional political economy on the ground, regardless of what's happening in some council meeting, either, you know, in the city that they live in or, you know, much less so across the ocean.
0: And you're right that qualitative, evaluative language would play a prominent role in Crown officials' attempts to impose order on this irregularity of the vocabulary that circulated to describe pearls intended to facilitate imperial control of the jewel. The distinct fate of two of these descriptive words illustrates well the enduring lesson of the American pearl boom born of this early Spanish experiment in administering new world wealth. Elenco, first used by the Central Classical authority on Pearl's Pliny the Elder to describe an elongated pearl came to mean in Spanish catalog or index, reflecting the very ordering impulse that pearls prompted. Another word employed in the early Caribbean fisheries for taxation purposes, barueca or baroque in English, which signified an irregular pearl, also lost its close association with the jewel, but came to stand for the... uh, defiance of this imagined order, an extravagant expression of independence of imagination. So is the pearl then the harbinger of capitalist categorization of grading commodities and separating them into subgroups?
2: You certainly see it there. You certainly see that impulse in full, you know, in full effect from the earliest days, from one of the earliest sites of, uh, of tentative Atlantic imperial exploitation, you absolutely see that impulse in the pearl fisheries. There's no doubt about it. Um, it's it's futile in the end, which is what I think makes it really interesting, uh, because it is very subjective. I mean, you imagine four four officials on the ground picking over, you know, the whatever uh, people have decided that they want to turn in and payment of their their royal tax. And one guy says, What do you think this is? Do you think this is a cacona or do you think this is a barrier? I don't know. Let's call it an asiento. Okay. So it's, you know, one guy's Baroque pearl is another guy's asiento pearl or another person's whatever. It just was from the very beginning, that kind of subjective language, it was the best they could do because the, the paradigm of of weights and measures that people use for for gold and silver just clearly does not work with pearls, and they figured that out right quick. But they couldn't they couldn't agree. There was, no, there was no containing the subjective judgment that was central to the use of these categories. So absolutely, the impulse is there uh, to separate, to categorize and to create value in that manner, but also present from the very beginning is the futility of that impulse.
0: So the ne- the necessity for subjectivity or the necessity for objectivity that the empire wants but on the ground what's taking place is subjectivity. You write in their reliance on language to bring precision to administrative approaches to the management of complex wealth. The Iberian monarchies drew on well-established nuanced vocabularies of color that were used to describe enslaved people in medieval I- Iberia. Did pearls, did pearl categorization then foreshadow racism's role in the political economy of empires and moving forward to this day?
2: What can I say? I, I The slave trade and the pearl trade are deeply entwined from the very, very beginning. And elaborate vocabularies of color are present in Iberia because slavery is present in Iberia uh, from the get-go. They, that, so the idea of, of race, race-based color categories is not born in the pearl fisheries, but the pearl fisheries help elaborate that linkage, absolutely, especially because as the pearl fisheries grow, they very quickly begin to import more and more enslaved Africans into them. So they don't generate the link between um, race-based color categorization of people, but they certainly help um, refine it or, or, or provide encouragement for its continued use.
0: You write that the irregularity of many transactions involving pearls, as well as the irregularity of pearls themselves embodied by the Baroque pearl, that, uh, but represented by the jewels' immense natural variety, reveals the chaos of the practices and assessments that were central to early modern bureaucracies. So it was governance in the settlements irregular and chaotic because their wealth was based on irregular and chaotic pearls? Was the pearls inability to be standardized the cause of the chaos?
2: I would say yes, but, and I say yes, but because yes, pearls cause chaos. They are very, very difficult. I would say impossible to control, but what really makes pearls interesting. And the reason that I, you know, continued writing this book for so long until I was saying what I wanted to say is that it's not even the pearls that are so interesting. Pearls are interesting, and ungovernable because they point to how people are interesting and fundamentally ungovernable. And you can coerce them and beat them six ways to Sunday. You can deprive them of their languages, their homeland and their freedom. You can disrupt their their longstanding traditions and polities and people still will find a way to create value for themselves one way or another. And pearls in the varieties of problems that they created just again and again and again underscored the fundamental ungovernability of subjects. You you can control people in some ways, some of the time, but fundamentally because pearls relied on subjective judgment for any person's assessment of their worth, They just again and again pointed like a flashing arrow to the ungovernability of the independent gaze. So I think that they become so interesting or rather they became so interesting to me when I realized that they were this very, very early lesson in just the fundamental independence of the human soul. That is really gonna, you know, empires try, they continue to try to exert power over peoples and places and people themselves are very, very difficult to control. Um, That doesn't mean I'm not trying to say that there is not immense suffering in the negotiation of that control and its limits. But people are remarkably able to circumvent imperial attempts to tell them how to think and what to do. And I think pearls just show us that again and again.
0: You write that by the end of the 17th century, pearls and pearl fisheries from the Caribbean to the Indian Ocean to the rivers of Northern Europe were embedded in sprawling imperial enterprises and proliferating networks for the distribution of people and products along global pathways. This complexity was increasingly acknowledged to be part of Pearl's appeal. We mentioned racism and slavery and capitalist accumulation and the Pearl's impact on all of those. What is the Pearl's contribution then to what we know today as... Globalization, Because when I was reading your book, I kept getting struck by the fact that this sounds like the beginnings of globalization.
2: Yes, and I see it that way. I, I, I think that the main lesson uh, to take away from these, you know, sure, they're larger commodity trades. If you're interested in capital flows, you know, my book is not the book for you. But if you're interested in looking a at how early and how profound sort of globalization is as a process, um, then I think that the pearl trade shows you that. But I also think it shows you, and it and I, it shows you this: whether you're looking at Sri Lanka, whether you're looking at the Scottish Highlands, whether you're looking at the Caribbean, it shows you the continual, you know, tiny but re- but regular drumbeat of imperfection in these evolving systems. So yes, these imperial systems for the distribution of people and products, the control of capital flows, absolutely, these are evolving uh, and becoming increasingly prominent over the course of the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries. But if we want to see the cracks in that structure, the pearl trade will show you that. It will show you people, you know, shaping these otherwise behemoth-seeming structures and processes on the ground using them when they suit their purposes, disobeying these laws when they don't want to obey them. Um, and so we see there's there's globalization, but this itself is a system that has not, you know, it's, it's not a monolith. Uh, there are plenty of blips and cracks in the way it's actually experienced. And that's a really important part of how we understand it too. Just like it's really important that we understand that empire is not like capital E Empire that does whatever it wants. There's actually a really powerful back and forth conversation from the earliest days uh, about what empire should mean and i think you see that in the story of
0: pearls you write that pearls significance is in what they reveal about the relationship between small scale political economies and large scale imperial approaches to the generation and management of profit how equal or unequal would you describe that relationship
2: i mean it's it's unequal certainly but it's it's still a relationship and i think you see it in really important I, I think you see it. You know, but my favorite example of that is in the in the early pearl fisheries, where the, there, there are these dueling, you know, again, empire is a tremendously complex concept. So there are lots of different impulses happening uh, within the evolving early Spanish Empire. And one of those impulses is a move towards efficiency and technology. And as a result of that impulse, people try to introduce dredges, mechanical dredges into the pearl fisheries. They say, this will make everything cleaner. We'll get rid of these people complaining about our horrible labor regime. Let's use dredges. And the conversation between the people on the ground and the imperial bureaucrats trying to sponsor this mechanical dredge puts front and center the skill and expertise of the enslaved divers and also indigenous divers in the profisheries, because in their response and I've, I've read these transcripts spanish owners tell spanish bureaucrats we don't watch your your rake only our divers can hear the noises that oysters make underwater and in their description of the oyster reefs they use indigenous words to describe the underwater ecology of the oyster banks so we see this, you know, it is it is not an equal relationship, but it is a relationship. And you see Spaniards challenge channeling the expertise and knowledge of the people that they enslave and depend upon for their profits to tell the crown, look, the way you want to go about this is not the right way to do it. We have to you know, they're not saying let's stop exploiting. They're saying let's exploit it the way that we know will work, because we depend upon the expert knowledge of the people who are actually doing the labor of pearl diving so that's what i mean when i say that there's a relationship between small-scale political economy and large-scale political economy because guess what happens in the end there are no dredges people aren't allowed to bring lakes into the fisheries these you know propositions continue to be made and they continue to lose out so that's you know not a that's not a major coup as as overthrows of empires go but it is a, it is one nonetheless i mean it's it's mixed blessings right but it's a sign that people on the ground are pushing back against dictates that make no sense to them.
0: You write, the study of pearls offers a new perspective on early modern commodity trades, one that tracks a trajectory of meaning based on personal assessment of webs of connectivity rather than market fluctuations. Indeed, the prevalence of clandestine pearl trading asks us to consider the relationship between extra legal transactions and state formation. People who staked their own claim to pearls at sites of production and consumption were less smugglers than participants in the crafting of a porous and imperfect web of regulation intended to control the movement of people and products between realms. So what is the impact of extra legal transactions of pearls on the formation of the Spanish Atlantic Empire? How important were these uh, criminal, if you will, transactions to the formation of that state or an obstacle to that formation?
2: It's funny. I, I'm remembering a comment made to me by one of my two wonderful dissertation advisors. Uh, Phil Morgan said to me once when I kept on I was presenting a chapter of this when it was still my dissertation and I kept on calling somebody a smuggler. And he kept saying to me, I don't think he's a smuggler. I don't think he's a smuggler. And I just didn't know what he was talking about. And then probably took me years to figure out what he was talking about. And and when I figured it out, it, it is the answer to your question, which is that we call things smuggling. And it's really a misnomer. It wasn't smuggling. It was just how things worked. It was just how goods got traded. Um, I am thinking here of a wonderful book I recently read by a historian named Jesse Cromwell, all about again sort of colonial Venezuela and how central, you know, quote unquote illegal contraband trade was. And I think what happens is whether it's pearls or it's um, or it's whatever you insert anything, any commodity that people want in this early modern period agricultural mind what have you people buck the rules they buck the regulations and that's just becomes the reality of colonial economies it's how they function you know in in the caribbean that's constantly beset by warfare where communication is slow where hurricanes happen regularly people on the ground elaborate a way of doing business that works for them that makes sense for them and you know this is a noisy conversation, people are not always on the same page about what they should look like, but they're doing it on the ground, very far away from the centers of imperial power. And so in response to this local political economy that people elaborate on the ground, wherever they happen to be living, you know, in conversation with neighbors that they're at war with, or the people that they enslave, all of this contributes to the emergence of a local political economy. The, the Crown, Spanish or otherwise, tries to make rules often in response to those realities, rather than um, they're constantly playing catch up, is I guess what I'm trying to say. It's really, it's, you know, if you wanna talk about an early American political economy an early Caribbean political economy, you really need to look at what the colonists themselves, free or enslaved, are doing and how they're trading. Don't spend all your time reading political dictates that are coming out of the Metropole because More often than not, they're misguided, or they're at most a response to realities that are being elaborated on the ground.
0: You write the irregularity that characterized the trade in pearls illuminates the lived experiences of empires on jurisdictional, commercial, and personal levels. Scholars have emphasized the Baroque space as one of superabundance and waste, but the proliferation of pearls can be seen instead as a sign not of waste, but of creation and enabling participation of the elaboration of the political economy of the era. So was this era more so a time of inclusion within the growing global economy and market than a time of superabundance and waste?
2: I think there's a lot of superabundance and waste, but I think that that is a more familiar story. I think that the story that I was more interested in telling were the stories of creation, of creation of value, of 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 cultivation and not just destruction. And by this I don't mean the brutality and and you know laying waste to, to both the pearl beds themselves, but also the tremendous suffering of the people who did most of the labor in the pearl fisheries. That is absolutely destruction. But I think it's also important to acknowledge that value was was that pearls were often the vehicle by which people negotiated Meaning for themselves, spaces for themselves, a better meal on any given Sunday for themselves, a blanket that kept them that much happier that week, or more wine that kept them that much happier that weekend. I think these things also matter, and I think here of one of my other favorite stories from the book, which is you know in a very different part of the world, in the Highlands of Scotland, when the Scottish crown begins to try to. Um, to to peel back pearl fishing out of local control from scottish rivers and send it all to london Um, and people resist because this is like pearls are everywhere they're a local resource they've been locally fished for millennia and they really reject an ambitious crown coming in and trying to take the pearls out of their control and i caught a glimpse in the archives of the vision that sort of the the way that these new imperial directives rankled for a lady a well-to-do lady who is quoted as having really liked to wear the pearls from her river on her fingers. So we we suddenly see a glimpse of just how people experienced how an individual lady, whose name I don't remember, if I ever even knew it, how she was pissed off because all of a sudden new imperially designated commissioners were being sent into her territory, into her land, and trying to lay a claim to the pearls that she was accustomed to having be made into rings for her fingers. And it's those stories that I think you see the creation of value. You see visions, understandings of value. You see people's understandings of their relationship to the land and its resources. And I think it's really important to think about those, those experiences of the early modern period as well, which are you know very small scale, very micro-historical. But I think they matter. I think that we lose those individual voices and those individual moments of negotiation, when we only focus on the the larger narratives, which are also important, which are frankly super bleak. If we want to tell long-term stories about the experience of empire over the long durée, I think that we can miss out on these individual experiences of negotiating the day to day. And that's what I think pearls offer us a glimpse of again and again.
0: You share an image of a Baroque pearl, the figure of an enslaved boy, his hands manacled behind his back embodies and through its dependence on a natural baroque pearl for its realization naturalizes the violence that produced pearls and indeed much of the wealth of empire you also mention other depictions of slavery in pearls naturalizing slavery how does an image of slavery in a pearl naturalize it Make slavery acceptable or in some way tolerable how important were pearls in that naturalization of slavery
2: I think they were quite important. I mean, I think they became a really powerful visual tool because they had all of these associations that I, that I trace in the book, you know, from, you know, prior to the encounter with the Americas, they're, they're a sought after jewel. But then what happens with pearls in the post 1492 era is that they become extra, uh, sort of extra sexy in the context of uh, early globalization and imperial expansion, and they become associated with exotic labor regimes, with the Caribbean, and then later on with the Indian Ocean world, with with really any place that produces pearls, people become interested in where pearls um, are coming from and who produced them. And I think that in the case of the Caribbean, there's enough bad publicity about what's going on there, people are familiar with that labor regime, that they become associated as a sort of... Um, As a sort of classic american jewel because again they're the first major source of wealth to come out of the americas and they make a big splash and they become associated with another you know absolutely central american institution which is slavery and so pearls as a product of the natural world which is also a central part of their appeal are used in art and in in material objects to naturalize, to make seem just as much a part of the natural order. Just as nature produces pearls, nature produces slavery. And I think that's the message that this artwork is supposed to be sending, is that just as pearls um, are are a gift of nature, so too is African slavery. And I think that that's the the potent and, um, and, and vicious power of a lot of these images in which you see enslaved people wearing pearls, or the pearl transformed in the body of enslaved boy. Uh, i think that's what's going on there
0: what you feature in your book and they are really really frightening images images
2: they are really frightening absolutely
0: you write by the end of the 17th century the appeal of pearls was their association with the relationships that lay at the heart of the imperial project the push and pull between order and disorder between containment of subjects and objects and unfettered movement of both across borders between subjectivity and objectivity? Do you believe that the struggle between subjectivity and objectivity is at the center of all imperial projects? And if so, how and (laughs) and where do you see that struggle between subjectivity and objectivity today, if it does continue?
2: That's a really big question. Uh, I don't even know if I dare hazard an answer, but what the hell. Um, I think that struggle (laughs) endures. I think that we, you know, increasingly we have just increasingly tried to commodify the world around this to regulate our time to be prisoners of clocks and to be just um you know working machines who you know have to pay bills all the time i think that that impulse to just sort of see everything as uh, a function of worth and money to be made is something that we see all around us today but i think that we also see all around us today um the rejection of that push to commodify time, to commodify uh, just our existence on this planet. I think we see it in our enjoyment of things that cannot be commodified and objectified. I think that there are plenty of signs, wherever you look in your personal life, out in the world, that we fundamentally have subjective judgment and what we decide we enjoy, the music we like, the radio shows we listen to, the books we read. You know, it's just nobody can dictate that. It has to come from you. And I think that again and again and again, our subjectivity and the importance of subjectivity to the decisions that we make continues to buck all of the sort of overwhelming pressures to commodify and objectify that surround us everywhere we look in modern society. So, you know, I don't want to proclaim uh, about all empires everywhere, because I think there, there are times and places in which empires are more and less successful, when objectification is more or less successful. But I think that the fundamental subjectivity uh, of just human judgment is is pretty enduring and pretty omnipresent wherever you look.
0: One last question for you, Molly. We've been speaking with historian Molly A. Warsh, author of American Baroque, Pearls and the Nature of Empire, 1492 to 1700. You can follow Molly on Twitter, at Molly Warsh, that's W-A-R-S-H. One last question for you, Molly, and I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question (laughs) we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. So is the problem with empire's not capital or capitalism or markets, but human relations? Are, are empires our fault, not capitalisms?
2: Empires are our fault is my answer to that. Um, I get weary of a capitalist-centric narrative trying to explain everything that ever happened in the past. It's certainly one of the very, very important uh phenomena of the making of the modern world, but I don't think it can explain absolutely everything. And I'm a very human centered historian. Humans are at the heart of my book. They're what interests me about the world today. And they're what interests me about the world in the past. And I think that humans are far more complex than can be summed up in a single insidious ideology. So I think that it can't explain everything. And I think that um, I think that in the end we have ourselves to blame and ourselves to thank for the the bad ideas we come up with and all of the ways that we try to to amend and make up for them
0: molly i cannot thank you enough for being on the show this is a fascinating book molly Warsh is the author again of american baroque pearls and the nature of empire 1492 to 1700 thank you so much for being on our show. thank
2: you all thank you all so much for your interest and for having me on it's been a blast all right take care take care bye bye
0: Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. If what you just heard from Molly Warsh on pearls and how their brutality, cruelty, and irregularity built an empire, if that made you angry, sad, anxious, or you became enlightened in some way, or you just realized... Yes, this really is hell Show your support by becoming a subscriber To our weekly bonus Friday Patreon podcast At patreon.com slash thisishell Or go to thisishell.com and click on support And see all the ways you can contribute To completely listener-supported This Is Hell Remember, without you, we got nothing So thanks to you for your support Jess, please remind us What is this week's question from hell And tell us how our listeners are responding so far
1: this week's question from hell is What are you stockpiling over there? What are you stockpiling over there? Adam A. says Personal tragedies transformed into consumable bits of weaponized distraction
0: <laughs> Is that a new NFT? <laughs> yeah
1: um, Fabio L. memes <laughs> uh, uh, Wojich R. beanie babies and pogs All right. <laughs> uh, Kevin W. reading material I just hope I don't drop my glasses like Burgess Meredith. And the last one for today, Zach N., decommissioned nuclear missile silos.
0: (laughs) Nice. Jesus, really? That's what you're stockpiling? That sounds pretty good. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell at the end of tomorrow's show. Again, the question from hell is, what are you stockpiling over there? What are you stockpiling over there? The person with their favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of the ways... That you can support This Is Hell by going to ThisIsHell.com and clicking on Support and see all of our swag, which is right there as well. You can leave your answer to this week's question from our Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of Wednesday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following the return of Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, it's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in Rotten History. On September 22, 1906, 115 years ago this Wednesday, white mobs ran amuck in the streets Remember, this is rotten history White mobs ran amuck in the streets of Atlanta, Georgia, intent on killing African-American men For months preceding the riot, competing candidates in Georgia's gubernatorial election Had wrangled in public over how best to respond to the increasing presence of African-Americans in local society which they all nonetheless agreed, was a problem that required disenfranchisement. Yes, racism's priority over democracy was bipartisan. And that's how we like things, right? Meanwhile, several Atlanta newspapers were feeding white resentment by publishing a steady drumbeat of unsubstantiated stories about rumored assaults on white women by black men when articles about four separate purported incidents appeared simultaneously in the city's papers, a mob of angry white men and boys assembled in downtown Atlanta. The city's mayor tried to calm the rapidly growing crowd, but... Soon, the white men were jumping onto streetcars and attacking black passengers. After the city shut down streetcar service, the mob began busting the windows of black-owned businesses, destroying the contents and often killing the proprietors, as well as randomly beating up and shooting black men on the street. Then, the mayor made a public statement blaming black people for the violence, and of course, this only encouraged the white rioters to continue their violence. For three more days, African-Americans were massacred in the streets of Atlanta, were arrested for trying to defend themselves. Their homes were raided by police and state militia and invaded by random thugs. After the rioting died down, estimates of the death toll varied wildly and widely. Only 10 official death certificates were issued for black victims, but some journalists and historians have said that as many as 40 people were killed. And countless more injured And I'm wondering if the New York Times will be running a story On how teenagers are being taught about Atlanta's racist white mob riots of 1906 Or if the Atlanta Journal-Constitution will be doing an investigation of their own Because I bet you are not only going to get teenagers from around the world Saying they are not being taught about the state-sanctioned killing of black people in 20th century Atlanta but you'll get kids from across the United States, across Georgia, hell, across Fulton County, where Atlanta is located, and even Atlanta itself. I'm willing to wager heavily that teenagers are not taught about Atlanta's 1906 riots in Atlanta or anywhere else, unless that is they tune into this week in Rotten History, which is we present at the end of every Monday's show here on This Is Hell. Hat tip to Ronaldo. In Rotten History, September 23rd, 1983, 38 years ago, this Thursday, the operator of an experimental nuclear reactor in Buenos Aires, Argentina, made a few serious goofs. Yeah, let's call them goofs. While changing the reactor's internal configuration in preparation for a test. So the operator, who had 14 years of experience and was, again, a total goof, was working alone, not in the... Presence of a radiation safety technician As required by procedure First he failed to empty the moderator completely Before moving the fuel plates and rods What a goof Then he made several mistakes in the placement Of those fuel elements Done together these actions caused a massive Release of neutron radiation Within minutes the operator began vomiting Two days later he was dead And now I'm feeling bad about calling him a goof But just before his death, as he lay in agony, he admitted that he had been careless on the day of the accident because it was a Friday afternoon, and he was in a hurry to go home. See? Capitalism kills. Work kills. We dislike work so much and look forward to not working to such an extent that we will literally risk our very lives just dreaming about the weekend and time off of work. So why the hell do we put so much value in something we don't want to do? Why not working or not having to work for someone else and instead work for some work ourselves and what we want to do with our lives, not how they can be brought and bought and sold by others? Why, why do we focus on working for others instead of working for ourselves? I am certain most people would much rather spend their time helping family and friends rather than someone Working for someone who is profiting off their labor Essentially exploiting them for their own wealth I mean The whole process is just So Goofy That's Rotten History and This Is Hell Jess who is on tomorrow's show Beginning at 10am Chicago time right here at Thisishell.com
1: On tomorrow's show, we'll be speaking with Max Haven on his book, Revenge Capitalism, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and the Settling of Unpayable Debts from Pluto Press.
0: I believe this is Max's third appearance here on This Is Hell, and you can search on his last name, H-A-I-V-E-N, Max Haven, and find our earlier discussions with him. And what about on Wednesday?
1: We're still working on it, but Jeff Dorchen returns for the moment of truth.
0: Hot damn. We are still looking for new volunteer board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board, as Jess and Egon and Richard and Alex do, email me at chuck@thisishell.com. And uh, this is becoming a little bit more of a pressing matter, so if you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell... Again, email me at 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 chuckatthisishell.com, chuckatthisishell.com. We are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, with shows beginning at 10 a.m. Monday through Friday. However, we are very flexible, and if you can only do it a couple of times a month, we can work with your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. This position does come with A modest stipend, so keep that in mind If you are interested in becoming a board Operator here on This Is Hell, email me at Chuck at this is Of course, with this position, you need to live in the Chicago Area, however, we are also seeking help From those of you who can work With us remotely, stuff that you Can, can do, uh, no matter where you live So, uh, if you would Like to be part of that project as well Email us at Chuck at ThisIsHell.com Now, I was mentioning earlier trying to hang out with listeners and how difficult as it has become and trying to hang out with friends last weekend and how difficult that was for me. So we are very, very, very fortunate to have listener, listeners who appreciate the show so much that they show their support in a myriad of ways. There are the people who like us or follow us on social media. There are those of you who share interviews or or the entire show online. Many of you tell your friends about This Is Hell, which is probably the way a lot of you discovered the show by word of mouth. We have listeners who have become Patreon subscribers and those who have bought our swag in support of the show. And then there's the big crowd we attract for our annual party. That is when we host a party. Stupid pandemic. We also have had listeners who donated equipment, much of the equipment Jess is using right now on the other side of the glass in the producer's booth was donated by you, our listening audience. So back in early 2018, three and a half years ago in March, we got an email from Karen who wanted to know uh, what had happened to a segment we used to do on the show, The Conspiracy Corner, and the contributor behind it, Elvis DeMauro. So we explained how Elvis had been, let's say, detained by local authorities somewhere in Southeast Asia, and that when he was released from detention, we hoped we could have Elvis return to the show, and we're currently working on scheduling Elvis's return. Fingers crossed the conspiracy corner could be back soon. But Karen did not only want to know about Elvis. She had heard at the time us say on the air that we needed a Mac Mini, And her husband, Anthony, an avid listener of the show, would be glad to donate an old Mac Mini they had laying around. And sure enough, a few days later, we got a package at the bar downstairs, and what do you know? It's a Mac Mini. In other words, Karen and Anthony quickly became some of our very favorite listeners. Ever here on this is hell So over the past weekend we heard from Karen again Karen writes hi Chuck Writing to you as a couple of long time listeners Who are going to be in Chicago In the Chicago area for a couple of days I'm a little behind on shows But it seems like previous plans to have a listener party Have been postponed to 2022 Understandable but also Knocked out a relatively convenient possibility Of us finally getting to meet you And the folks that work so hard for many years now To bring all of us that care to listen To the show we love I could let it go, but I can't. So I very fumbly, fumbly. So I very humbly ask if you and/or any members of the show crew may be available to meet up with me and Anthony. We'll be in the city September 24th to September 27th. So that's this coming weekend, and have quite a bit of flexibility. Unfortunately, this doesn't go without saying these days. So I'm saying it. We are fully vaxxed and we have no problems wearing masks. Seems like maybe that should be discussed up front these days in trying to coordinate something like this. Please let me know if you think something might work out and we can go from there. Thanks, Karen. Karen, from my experience this past weekend with a friend visiting from Milwaukee, and a friend of mine was supposed to be visiting from Hong Kong, but he got trapped Thursday night downtown in his hotel. The traffic had got so bad downtown, especially in the River North area uh, due to the 200th anniversary of Mexican independence and so many people partying that he couldn't even get out of the hotel to come up north, I live what, eight miles north of downtown, still within the city. So yeah, from my experience this past weekend with a friend visiting from Milwaukee, Karen, it's clear I'm still freaking out about the virus. However, when we did hang out with my friend this weekend, we did it almost exclusively outdoors. We only ate one meal indoors together, instead always being out on the back deck to our apartment, breathing relatively virus-free air. So I'm, I'm clearly still not comfortable being in crowds or even just having one person stay at my home. And I definitely want to go, don't want to go to a gallery or a museum or a concert Or eating indoors at a restaurant or drinking inside of a bar I was fine with drinking beer in a beer garden Socially distanced, even without a mask Until a family member told me just recently That their co-workers both caught the Delta variant Apparently from one another After they hung out, despite being va- vaxxed, masked, and socially distancing They both still caught the Delta variant in other words, Karen and Anthony and everybody listening right now, I cannot wait to be able to hang out again with all of you. I am not sure how good I'll be at hanging out, but I remember enjoying socializing and I think it's the kind of thing I'd like to get back to doing, if I remember it correctly. I'm look for- looking forward to the return of This Is Hell office hours, which will be returning to Wednesday evenings. Yes, when they return they will be back on the old schedule of happening every Wednesday evening at Carey's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting. Now, I know Alex has been holding unofficial office hours at Carey's on Wednesday nights the last few weeks. However, my cold has been so bad I've not been able to drop by. And to be honest, when I am feeling well enough, I still don't know if I will be comfortable because of the ongoing parade of variants the coronavirus is producing. And being that I have to visit some unvaccinated and elderly people in a month, I'm very cautious about having any human contact right now. But Karen, check your email. Maybe there is a way we can meet this weekend. Maybe, just maybe, there's an open-air venue without crowds where we can have a beer or two. If you are going to be passing through Chicago for whatever reason and would like to meet up, Maybe we can email me at chuck at hell dot com. While we are not having our anniversary and listener appreciation party until July twenty twenty two, and this is hell office hours, which will again be happening every Wednesday evening, have not yet returned. There still may be ways that we can hang out. Thanks to our guest today, historian Molly A. warsh author of American Broke, Pearls and the Nature of Empire, fourteen ninety two to seventeen hundred. You can follow Molly on Twitter at Molly Warsh, W-A-R-S-H. Thanks to Jess Lipka for running the board. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. And this week's Hangar of is Papas Rayanas. We told you so. This is hell.
1: My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor.